2002 was a very pivotal year for me. It was the year that I turned 10 years old and the year that I completed the fourth grade. But 2002 was also the year that the clergy abuse scandal exploded, beginning in Boston and then continuing around the entire United States. And even as a 10-year-old, I watched the news with my parents each night, and even at a, that young age, I knew generally what many of the people were being accused of. After all, the words protecting God's children entered into my vocabulary at that young age. Mine was the first generation to have that. I knew even then that there was an extensive cover-up in many circles of the church, and I knew that the faith of many, many people was shaken or destroyed entirely. And as I continued in Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, seven years of seminary, and now just over a year as a priest, I've gradually understood this crisis much more and the many nuances that it entails. These clergy scandals have framed so much of my Catholic life. There is no single event more influential on my generation of Catholics than the clergy scandals. But as we have seen in these last couple weeks, there has been much that has not changed since 2002. Much that unfortunately, tragically, and sickeningly has not changed. We heard the grand jury report from the state of Pennsylvania detailing abuse going back seven decades, identifying over a thousand victims and naming over 300 priests. And I had to parse through that report over the last week or so, it's over 900 pages. And it is the most graphic and disturbing thing I have ever read in my life. And this is no hyperbole, I had to put it down because I thought I was going to get physically sick. And more recently, we've heard current revelations of abuse and intimidation against one of the most prominent American churchmen of the last century, the now former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. And my heart aches for the victims and survivors of this abuse, many of whom go through a pain that I could never imagine. And I pray for them each and every day. But what probably has me the most upset and, dare I say, angry was that even though virtually all of the content of that report was pre-2002, it didn't really involve a lot of new abuse at all, and that even though seminary formation in the church has been overhauled with rigorous psychological evaluation, evaluation by lay professors and our peers, in spite of all of that, many of those who covered up this abuse decades ago are still in positions of authority in the church. And more so, despite the policies and, pr and procedures we have for reporting and removing of priests and bishops, which have worked on the local level, many bishops knew about Cardinal McCarrick for decades and allowed him to continue in ministry as a cardinal up until last month. Simply put, the response of so many in authority in the church for so many years was silence willful ignorance, and complicity. And yes, I said complicity. Because when those in authority stay silent, when they fail to speak out, when they have the power to do so, they are complicit in grave, horrid, and despicable evils. Shepherding the flock of God is not a right. It is a privilege that carries with it the greatest responsibility this world has ever known. 
It's why about a month ago in our first reading, Jeremiah spoke out so boldly and said, Woe to those shepherds who mislead the flock. And so I know that Jeremiah would say along with us today, Woe to those shepherds who stay silent. Woe to those shepherds who protect predators because they share a similar ideology. Woe to those shepherds who collude to form networks of sinful behavior from seminaries to the Vatican. These are sins that cry out to God Almighty for vengeance. Those who engage in them should be arrested if possible and must be removed from ministry. And those who covered them up and knew about it should not be in positions of authority in the church. Now we might be tempted to say, yes, these things were in the past, they happened long ago, and we in St. Louis have asked the Attorney General out of transparency to open our books and files, and we have policies now, so we're doing better. And while that might technically be true, and we shouldn't discount that, I think that misses the point entirely. Because for too long, the church has had what I like to call legal outrage and sentimental outrage. We've had legal outrage, so we've put in policies to get us on the up and up legally. We've had sentimental outrage, so we've crafted PR statements saying, I'm sorry. But where is the moral outrage? Where is the moral outrage? That is why so many people are still angry today. Because for 16 years, we have responded with policies and statements when we should have had moral outrage over the, the mere fact that so many priests were unfaithful to celibacy to say nothing of hurting thousands of children. We've had lawyers running our legal response, PR people running our sentimental response. We don't need lawyers. We don't need PR people now. We need shepherds. We need men after Christ's own heart. We need spiritual fathers, worthy leaders. As C.S. Lewis would say, we need men with chests. Because unfortunately, clearly, our hierarchy has a lot of men without them. These sins must be eradicated and purged from the church. This is all very painful for us, but it is necessary, brothers and sisters. On a personal level, it's painful for me to see a vocation that I love so dearly being tarnished by those who disgrace it from within. And it's also painful for me to see celibacy, a life that I cherish and believe in strongly, being disparaged by so many people. You know, a lot of people have said in recent days that if priests weren't celibate, then these things wouldn't be happening. Well, marriage is a wonderful way of life and a beautiful road to holiness to so many of you here but marriage is not a cure for temptation against purity. We know this. And to assert that marriage is the only thing preventing the abuse of a child is a mischaracterization of the problem and an oversimplification of its solutions. After all, celibacy was not the cause of the twisted sexuality of Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, Bill O'Reilly, and a boatload of others. This is a problem of sin. It is a problem of evil. It is a moral and spiritual crisis before it ever was an earthly or policy-making one. And the root of this crisis is a lack of holiness among priests and a lack of holiness among bishops. Evil has taken root in the hearts, minds, and consciences of those who should be held to the highest of standards. 
Those priests, unfaithful to celibacy, whether repeatedly with adults, as Cardinal McCarrick was, or at any time with a child, do not belong in the priesthood. And those who continually overlook it or see nothing wrong with such immoral behavior do not belong in positions of authority in the church. Their behavior, to many of us, feels like betrayal by modern-day Judas Iscariots, whom Satan has entered just as he entered Judas 2,000 years ago. We are fighting evil itself. We are fighting the devil. So we should not just wage war with merely earthly instruments, as good and as necessary as all those procedures are. We can't forget the spiritual weapons as well. On my own part, these last couple weeks have been filled with fasting, praying in reparation for the sins of my brother priests, for the victims and survivors of this abuse, and for the whole church, especially masses such as this, and daily praying that St. Michael the Archangel prayer. And I encourage you to pray that prayer daily, especially with your families, for the purification of the church. But if there's one consolation that I've had in these last few weeks, it has ironically been a greater conviction that the church is founded by Christ. Because if the holiness of the church was dependent on her members, we would be long gone by now. The church would have been done centuries ago. We do not make the church holy. God does. And despite the sinfulness of the members of the church, God is still here. He dwells in our tabernacles and we will receive him in the Holy Eucharist in just a few minutes. We were promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church of God. These words weren't spoken by some bishop slash bureaucrat. They were spoken by God himself. I have never once doubted those words. Not once. Not even now. And to all of you here, especially younger people, maybe people my age who have grown up with this, or maybe even a little younger than me, even some of you who might have thought about priesthood or religious life, but events of recent weeks have jaded, confused, or discouraged you. I implore you to take heart and to take courage. The church needs you. She needs you now more than ever. These scandals show us that we don't just need warm bodies in our pews and at our pulpits. We need holy people, people of heroic virtue, heroic sacrifice and courage to stand up for the powerless, to heal hearts that have been wounded by sacrilege, and to rebuild a church that in many ways seems burnt to the ground in rubble. And to those disappointed and angry, I know what it's like to be disappointed by those in authority in the church. I've been there too. I remember it quite well. It was Saturday, July 11, 2009. It was the day that I decided I was going to go to the seminary. I was at a Steubenville conference and getting to tell my parents my siblings, my family, and close friends that I wanted to be a priest was the greatest feeling I had ever had in my life. The only thing that compares to it probably was my ordination day itself. I was on fire in my faith and I had an inner peace that I had never experienced ever in my life. But that peace was short-lived because 18 days later on the 29th of July, the pastor of a prominent parish in South City was arrested in a sting operation trying to solicit a minor online. Turned out to be a police officer. And this priest had previously served at my home parish, St. Ferdinand. It was when I was an infant, I didn't even really know who he was, but I saw his face really for the first time on the news that night, 
my parents. And it was a big story. It was all over the news and all over the paper. As a family, we sort of watched the news that night in stunned silence until my mom turned to me from across the room, looked me dead in the eye, and with a heart aching as only a mother's could, she said, John, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to do this? It was the first crisis in my vocation. It was only 18 days in. I know my mom wasn't doubting my sincerity. She knew, as well as all of us, that being a strong Catholic, much less being a priest, is a very, very difficult thing to do today. Because the church is struggling, to say the very least. People have likened it to a building on fire, and wanting to be a priest is like wanting to be a firefighter in the middle of that inferno. That's what my mom meant when she asked me that question. As a young priest today, I'd be lying to you if I said I haven't asked myself that same question once again. Do I really want to do this? Well, the answer is obviously a resounding yes, more so now than at any other time in my life. There is nothing I would rather do than serve the people of God and the body of Christ as a priest, but I think we have to look deeper into our own selves this week because we sort of see this same question being posed by Jesus to the apostles. This gospel concludes a long discourse on the Eucharist, John chapter 6, where Jesus gives a lot of provocative language about how he is the bread of life. And as a result of this, we hear that many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Different circumstances than today, but similar in principle. And so Jesus asked his disciples, do you also want to leave? We should not fault ourselves for asking that question. In fact, I think we should ask that question to ourselves. And we're probably going to have to keep asking ourselves that question in the days and weeks to come. I hope and I pray that your faith, our faith, is strong enough to respond as Simon Peter did. To say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. I pray that we are strong enough to want to say, I want to fight that fire and preserve that building we know to be the church. Because our faith is not in human beings or the human personalities running the church. Our faith is in God, just as Simon Peter's was. We can't put our faith in a priest, a bishop, or a pope. And I implore you, please do not put your faith in me. I am a human being. I am a sinner. I am inevitably going to let you down or disappoint you if I haven't done so already. We need action to rid sin from the clergy and from our church. We need repentance by the whole church and to put our faith in God rather than mere human beings and a recommitment to the gospel by all of us. That is the only way we purify our church that needs it so badly and the only way we purge these repulsive sins from the body of Christ. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, at this Mass in particular, to pray for the victims and survivors of this abuse and their unimaginable agony suffered at the hands of those who should have protected them. To pray for our church that she be given good shepherds, worthy leaders after the heart of Jesus, shepherds willing to sacrifice and die for the flock. And we need to pray for one another too, that we can keep the faith and stay strong and take heart, so that in our struggle and in our doubt, when we feel resigned to abandoning God, when we have to ask ourselves, do we also want to leave? We can say with St. Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life.